you are totally awesome. Welcome to Your Totally Awesome, a podcast devoted to catching up with some of the amazing people around us and finding out what they've been up to lately. My name's Aaron, and today we're joined by former coordinator of Bright Brown Refugee Youth Tutoring and Enrichment, Tara Kane Prendergast. Thanks for joining us today, Tara. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Tara, can you tell us a little bit about the Bright program that has been a big part of your life here at mm-hmm. Brown, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you just tell us and maybe describe a little bit about what it is? So, Bright was started in 2006 by a student at Brown. Her name was Leah Harrison. Um, and she had worked at the International Institute of Rhode Island, which is our, now our community partner, and which resettles refugees in Providence. So every year there are about 200 individuals who are resettled in Providence through the IRI. From all over the place? From all over the world. Okay. Currently, Bright works with people from about 16 different countries. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, and so Leah had worked for a semester um, there, and she had sort of seen that after about 90 days funding for refugee support runs out because the federal government gives funding to the International Institute to do initial work with refugees to help them resettle, okay. but then they're kind of left, and there aren't really programs that continue supporting them, wow, okay. which is much needed. People are often coming from most refugees really don't speak English, right? So it's really challenging to figure out how to navigate a whole new culture, Absolutely. city systems, all of this. Um, and the children, in particular, are put into school and don't have any extra support to be able to do on school. They're put into school at their age level, not at their grade level. Mm-hmm. So you often have students who are multiple grades behind where they're put into school. And so out of this context, Leah um, came up with the idea of Bright, which is able to extend the support for the refugee community past that initial resettlement period. So what Bright does is um, facilitates in-home, one-on-one tutoring and mentoring between Brown students and refugee individuals. We work mostly with kids, um, elementary, middle, high school, but we also work with some parents. As oh, well. wow. And they're learning as well? Are they learning the language? Yeah. Mostly yeah. And the idea behind that is because, I mean, especially, it's, especially mothers who are at home taking care of the kids and don't have access then to being able to practice English. Right. But, you know, um, they're really crucial to being able, in order to be really involved in their kids' school lives and to navigate the U.S., English is, you know, um, really, really important. important. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> sort of. I would agree. So we work with the whole family, okay. family support. Um, so Brown students basically spend three hours, at least three hours a week, in the home of the family they work with. Okay. Um, the focus is academic tutoring and language support, but enrichment is also important. And right. every semester, Bright has several community events like craft day, a big Thanksgiving feast. And that's where everyone comes together? Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And tutors get a small um, bit of money every semester to okay. be able to take their learners to a movie or to a museum or sort of enrichment. Right. How do they learn about the program? Not, not the brown students, but the, uh, the, refugees. the refugees. So um, the International Institute, as I said, resettles all of the refugees in Providence. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, we work very closely with them okay. to be paired up with families. And so when, fa- when a family arrives, they tell them about the Bright program and ask if they would like to do it. Okay. Um, and then we work further with, with um, a person, Akimana, who works at the Institute, who's okay. the liaison 
with the schools and the children mm -hmm. to identify those refugees that sort of most need our help because right. we're never really able to fully support. Right. Uh, how many people are working with Bright right so now? So Bright's actually huge. I think it's the largest student organization. Wow. It's yeah, 120 right? volunteers. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's that's so we work with that many refugees. Okay. Um, and how did you get involved with Brighton particularly? Yeah, so um, I should also just, to fill out the model, it's run yeah. by student coordinators. So there are like six leaders every semester. Right. And it's now became a part of the Swear Center. Oh, so it's okay. not a Swear Center program, but that only happened in this last year. And so the Swear Center is Brighton's... Uh, Public service. Oh, right. Yeah. So um, I found out about Bright through when I first arrived at Brown because I did a um, UCAP, which is a pre-orientation program that um, has designed to expose incoming students to um, community work that's okay. happening and also to expose us to the city. Mm -hmm. um, so I found out about Bright when I was doing that program. Okay. And I joined as a freshman, like my first semester, and I got matched with a family um, who I met them a week after they'd arrived in Providence. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Oh my so gosh. they had lived there, like, a, there's a family of six kids, and all the kids had been born oh in gosh. a refugee camp in Tanzania. They're okay. ethnically Burundian. Um, so when we met, the only word that we had in common was hello in English. Oh my gosh. Um, I was the entire family in yourself. It's yeah. The parents didn't speak English right. either. Yeah. Like, They're also, uh, their background is as peasant farmers, and the parents didn't have the opportunity to go to school because they grew up in refugee camps, right. and they just you know, experienced a lot of uh, a lot of political upheaval. Mm -hmm. um, and so no one in the family was literate okay. at the time, too. Um, How did they end up in problems? I'm sorry to interject on your story. It's just such a... No, it's, refugee resettlement is really fascinating, I think. Um, so... There are multiple different agencies and levels that are involved in it, but basically there are refugee camps around the world that are usually overseen or somehow affiliated with the UNHCR, United Nations... Uh, HCR. HCR's... Human... We can leave it up. That's human rights, whatever. Some Coalition or something. Right, right, okay. <laughs> um, so refugees in camps apply to be resettled through the UNHCR. Um, oh, High Commission on Refugees. There we go. That was even close to what I was going to guess. <laughs> Human Rights Coalition is not the same thing. Right. No. <laughs> um, then the UNHCR works with entities of governments from different nations. Oh, okay. So there are multiple countries that resettle refugees around the world. Um, so then the like those kind of middlemen work within the like the U.S. federal government, for okay. example, to figure out how many refugees they're going to take a year. It's actually the president who decides how many refugees like are going to be resettled every year. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's a little side note on his, yeah. uh, on his job description. Okay. Yeah. And um, the department that then does resettlement for refugees and has, like, you know, funding authority and yeah. is connected with the more local levels that actually do the resettlement work mm -hmm. um, is in the, is the part of the... Um, Department of State. Okay. Um, okay. So, on average, about 75,000 refugees are resettled every year. Interesting. Okay. I, it's a long story because it's not actually just technically refugees. There's kind of lumped people coming from, like, there's asylees, unaccompanied minors, now... And that's all grouped in there. Well. kind of grouped in there. Okay. Um, and those are, the, those are also kids that Bright works with? 
Well, Bright, we don't have any only ways. Okay. of those people in Providence that I know of. Got it. So, okay. yeah, Bright exclusively works with refugees. But it's, it's just to say that it's sort of this really complicated process. Right, that's, I mean, yeah, that's enough. Right. And, and so, okay, going back to your, before I, I interrupt oh, you, no. going back <laughs> to your story with, um, with the family that you... Oh, and how I, right, family. okay. So, the girl that I, um, I work with, Alice, and she's, she was eight when I met her. And uh, she's just really brilliant. She's really brilliant. And um, she's one of the girls in that family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. She's a middle child. And so we spent a lot of time together. We started off like really basic, doing walking around the neighborhood, and I would point at something and say the word in English, and she would repeat after me. Um, and then we learned the alphabet. Yeah. And she was in school, and she was just picking up language really quickly. Wow. So, um, she, I mean, she picked up language really, really quickly. Was there, like, an ESL program that she got put into? Yeah, they're put into ESL programs. That's, cool. that's probably that, right? The Providence Public School System is very, very, very under-resourced, mm. and, like, the school that she's in, for example, is called, it's named Mary Fogarty, um, and only, like, 28% of this of the school is at grade level in reading, writing, wow. and math, and this is an elementary school, yeah. so, I mean, you can just imagine that. Um, by the time those kids get to high school, they're right. way, way behind. Yeah. Um, and I met her her teacher at one point, and her teacher had a really thick accent, um, so I could barely understand her English. And I was, wow. you know, for someone who, for... yeah, there's a lot yeah. of challenges in school. So there is an ESL program, but I don't think it's really got enough resources to have been really um, supportive of her. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I worked well, with them, and I still, I still am really close to that family. Yeah. I work with that family. And you, were you with them the entire year, or was that like, what, what's mm -hmm. the system there? Is it like a two-year system? Yeah, so Bright, um, in order to become a Bright volunteer, you, we have a pretty extensive interviewing and application mm -hmm. process, just because since um, the heart of it is a relationship, mm -hmm. it's really important for people to know that they're not getting into something they can try for a couple of weeks right. and then drop. Right. You know, that, that young, these young people we work with, really, you become emotionally, um, they really invest in you. Right. And, um, they get really confused when tutors drop out. So, um, how did I start talking about that? Anyway, so we have a bit of a selection process. Yes. We ask for a one-year commitment. Okay, yeah. so you're with that family in particular for a year. Yeah, but I actually, so I have been working with Bright for almost four years yeah. now, and I've always with the same family. Got it, throughout the four years. Yeah. And and so as coordinator, what kind of stuff did you did you do with mm -hmm. Bright? What, what exactly was the was the mission or the plan for yeah. you? Yeah. So I've actually um, been, as a coordinator of Bright, like, when it's really transformed, the organization. Wow, okay. Um, because when I started... There was, it was pretty, I mean, it was, it was a relatively new program. It was two years two after started, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, in the beginning, I think it started off as being pretty informal. It wasn't even an official student group at that time. Oh, wow. okay. And it was kind of like a, a particular friend group did it. There wasn't a selection process for tutors. There wasn't just much of a kind of an institution or procedure. Um, so, like, the semester, I started coordinating my, the spring of my freshman year. Okay. I was one. So that was in 2009. Yeah, and at that point, I was one of um, I think there were five of us, okay. but all of the coordinators who had been working there for a while were gone. So there was a major loss of kind of institutional programmatic right. memory. Um, we didn't know the families. We had never been introduced. Like there was no transfer. It was basically knowledge. a reset button. There's yeah, someone just hit the reset exactly. button. Exactly. Okay. So the first semester was a total failure. We did a really bad job. I'm sure that's not true. Lost sure a lot of true. volunteers and just did not prevent. Did not. Um, uh, support people very well, okay. either our volunteers or the refugees. But so then, um, the next summer, one of the coordinators uh, came, who had been coordinating before, she came back. 
okay. um, and did a fellowship, a CV Star Fellowship through okay. the Square Center to do kind of some development work for Bright to get a mission statement worked out. All these official things. Yeah, yes. yeah. So the next year then we like became a student group and started having evaluation materials right. and kind of streamlining our practices. And this is your sophomore year? And my sophomore year. Yeah. My sophomore um, summer I worked with another coordinator on, an, on another CV Star oh, fellowship. And you guys got to develop it more? I did a lot more development. Okay, got it. My junior fall I was head coordinator which is just kind of like keeping all the pieces together. Right. That's a tough job. It's yeah, it was job. like a full-time job. Yeah. None of it, it was never paid, so um, I was doing It's a little bit hard. Working. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, and being a student, I mean, that's also part yeah. of it. You know, you have to do that here at Brown. Exactly. Um, and, and so, you, as a student, maybe that's a nice transition. Yeah. Your, your, Tara just finished her thesis. Finished? I'm or closing it? I'm starting, because I'm a point fiver. That's right. I'm halfway through. I apologize for that. <laughs> she's, uh, she's writing a thesis, and can you just tell, tell our audience real quick mm -hmm. what, what your thesis is about? So I am a history concentrator, and I've um, studied kind of comparative colonial and post-colonial history. Um, and I've taken some courses at Brown that have looked at American history as sort of a post-colonial history as well. Um, and so that's background to what I'm my project. So I'm looking at um, a particular moment in a sort of long and really complicated dispute that's ostensibly between the Navajo and Hopi tribes. Um, the Navajo reservation is it's a very large piece of land, I'm forgetting what the actual square footage is, in um, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. Mm -hmm. And it's the largest land base of a native reservation in the United States, and I think this has the second largest population right. of any native reservation. So it's, it's really Huge. big. The Hopi is, is really small, and it's actually inside of the Navajo reservation. Okay. So um, going way back to 1882, when a treaty was made that yeah. kind of promised a bit of the land to both tribes, um, there's been some conflict over land use. Between the two. Between the two. Tribes. Yeah. So, um, but starting in 1958, they actually went to court over it. There was this really long process. And in 1974, um, there, a resolution was decided by Congress. Um, and that resolution decided to partition the land between the two tribes. And it meant that um, all the Navajo who were living on what was then decided to be Hopi land would have to move and vice versa. Mm. The thing is, there were 10,000 Navajo people living on the land who the then were supposed to be moved, and um, 100 Hopi living on the, on the what was decided to be Navajo. Okay. So, um, I mean, this is forced relocation of 11,000 people right. in 1974. So that's, you know, like, why would we arrive at that decision? Is yeah. there, you know, I had, there's like tons of questions about this. So, so I was just kind of, when I found out about this history... I was intrigued by just how big of a deal that was, right. and so my thesis... No one knows about it. I know, I know nothing about, about this, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, another really important context to this dispute and why I said it's ostensibly between the tribes yeah. is that um, probably the Navajo Nation, I think, is probably one of the most energy-rich areas in the United States. There's uranium, oil... Right. Um, Oil. There's uranium, gas, and coal, okay. and also um, there were some, you know, water tables okay. that have been used in coal production. Okay. So basically, uh, when the reservation was was given to the Navajo, 
the U.S. The, no one knew that there was all of these resources, right? And then in the 1920s, there was oh. prospecting, and they were discovered. And, they and so then there's this, been this whole process of trying to kind right. of like exploit them, in my view. So I, I'm seeing like even there, there's like a tie to the refugee aspect mm -hmm. as well. So <laughs> exactly, it seems to follow you around. Is that intentional, or was that something that just was a nice coincidence? I kind of realized. I think um, my whole life, I have really, really cared about sort of the most marginalized people. I was always, you know, the kid in school that was really upset when someone got bullied. Yeah. Um, Tara's also the nicest girl you'll ever no. <laughs> Completely honest, completely true, as you can already tell, probably. And so that's kind of what got you interested? Well, I think I think that there's just something about, like, um, that was that's more, like, where I go to things, is people that seem to have very little representation and right. voice and um, to be pulled around a lot. Right. So... But then I realize I'm also really interested in migration and movement and displacement. Well, this is a nice next opportunity, right? Yeah. What, so growing up, you were you were that nice girl that was always on the mm -hmm. side of the, the underdog. Most of the time. Uh, most of the time. I'm going to be honest. Um, was was there anything about how your parents, you know, raised you that mm -hmm. particularly made shaped you in that mm -hmm. way? What what exactly did that? Well, it's, it's pretty hokey, but um, I was actually born with a pretty intense like medical thing. Um, I was born with what's called a cystic hygroma, which uh, is very rare, and it's sort of like, kind of looks like a tumor. It's, um, it was right here, and it was, I have had multiple surgeries, I've had uh, four major surgeries and like probably ten um, major rounds of antibiotics or hospitalizations. So my whole, like my mom, <laughs> I say this because my mom thinks that experiencing so much pain when I was really little and having like times when I was in school where I had like a chin that looked like a chipmunk and you know I was really funny looking and I had like a speech impediment from this and all these things sort of just uh, was one of the things that really contributed to my level of sensitivity. Right. Right. But I mean also absolutely I am totally just my parents daughter. I was raised um, with like very very high value of kindness and so big shout out to, to Tara's parents. Yeah. Uh, they're the best, but you've done a great job. You've mm -hmm. done a great job. Um, and then also Tara, as a, as, a, as a final thing to say here, Tara's one of our speakers at our, at our commencement of, our, of the graduating class of 2012. You're an orator, as we like to call mm -hmm. that round. So first of all, congratulations Thank on that. Um, and, uh, and, and can we get a little snippet or gem of what, what the, uh, the speech is going to be about? Yeah. Well, it's good to ask me today because I was just finishing editing mm -hmm. my speech. Um, so I think that there are sort of two parts of the speech, or I hope that that's what I'm achieving. One is which uh, one is that it's a bit of a call to action, mm -hmm. um, as is probably obvious from all the things I've been talking about. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to think about um, people in the world who don't have the kinds of opportunities that we do. Absolutely. Um, and I think as Brown students that we, I mean, we're pretty lucky. Pretty privileged. Pretty, yeah. Pretty privileged. And um, we've had a lot of amazing opportunities and we're connected to all these incredible people and a lot of resources. So a bit of my speech is sort of, you know, an appeal to think about very critically how we're going to use that privilege and power. Um, and so there's some statistics about the world that are pretty sobering, and actually Alice, um, I talk about my Alice, the student I worked with. Um, but then I also hope that there's, you know, a way in which it is sort of empowering. I try and illustrate what I think um, Brown has really gifted us in terms of cultivating our knowledge and our kind of critical thinking skills and also our hearts. Right. So there's this one quotation that has um, been a major source of inspiration in my life, and it's by Aristotle. 
He says that educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. So that's, um, I think, probably kind of the heart of my speech. <laughs> it's a very, it's a lovely quote. It's a lovely It's a good sentiment. Um, but thank you so much. So everyone be on the lookout for Tara's speech. She was chosen amongst, you know, countless people who applied to be a, to be an orator and, you know, the, the, the committee chose wisely with Tara. Um, but we thank you so much for coming on and for telling us about everything you've been out to. And that's some amazing stuff in that movie. But, um, so everyone be on the lookout. It's Tara, been a pleasure. <laughs>